Hello and welcome back to Getaway Day. As always, I am Mason, he is Gautham, and we are here to talk about some baseball. Uh, before we do that, Gautham, how was your weekend? How's your week going so far? What's up? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, busy week at work, but lots of baseball after work, so that makes it uh, better. And, um, you know, just happy that the season's uh, rolling along now. I definitely feel that. It's, uh, it's nice getting to see, uh, just to have something to look forward to basically every night. Is uh, kind of during football season, it's like, what do I do Tuesday through or t- Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday? Like, I don't know. You only get they don't three have, days. They don't have Tuesday have. night football yet and Wednesday night football. Right? And, like, what yeah. is this? Bring us the USFL. <laughs> we need more football. Um, <laughs> no, but <clears throat> that is my favorite part about baseball season is it's just all the time. Like, even if your team's not playing, someone is. Every day. It doesn't matter. There's what two games or two days a year that there's no one playing really. And it's uh, the the all-star break. Yeah. Yeah. So the day after the all-star break. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I I can deal with that. That's fine. But. All right. So. Let's let's get right into it then. So. We had a lot, a lot of interesting baseball this weekend. we actually had three walk-offs all in one day on Sunday. Uh, the first was, uh, shoot, I'm trying to think who they played. Uh, the Houston Astros against the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, walk-off home run by Jeremy Pena. Uh, his second home run of the year, his first career walk-off home run. Uh, was it, what, 10th inning? Yeah, it was in the 10th inning. The Blue Jays had taken the lead in the top of the inning, and then Pena came up with a runner on base and hit a huge bomb, like dead center field off Jordan Romano, who's been insane this season for the Blue Jays. He already had like eight saves at that point in his first eight appearances and basically had been untouched to that point in the season. And then Pena just takes him deep. If I remember right, he had a a converted save streak of like – 24 yeah, it, or 30 or something something ridiculous was, going into I last year was, yeah it was around 30 it was it was the yeah. longest in the league and he's been locked down since mid-season last year basically and Pena tagged him for that bomb yeah so um but I wanted to say about Pena like he's the one rookie really one of the few rookies who was making his major league debut who's really played really well and I guess we should have kind of seen this coming because of the way the Astros treated the situation. They didn't go out and get another established shortstop. They were like, Hey kid, this is, this is your job, your time to shine. And he kind of is like his numbers here this season, uh, 246 average 323 OBP. He's got the three homers now, 141 WRC plus, and he's been phenomenal defensively at shortstop. So no real drop off from Correa on the defensive side. And then Correa himself has really struggled out of the gate. Uh, guys only hit 179 so far with uh, one home run. So a little bit of an adjustment period for him going to the uh, new environment, but I'm sure he'll get it going. But so far, Astro has got to be pleased with what they have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I Jeremy Pena is uh, 
he's looking like he's going to be a force for a while to come. Just if he if he's starting out this good, it gives you a lot of hope. And they they put a lot of faith into this kid. So we'll see. Uh, But also on Sunday, we had uh, another walk off situation up in uh, Minnesota. Um, Minnesota Twins versus the Chicago White Sox. I believe this was Geo Day, right? Uh, yeah, I think he started that game. Yeah, yeah. And Geo pitched. Geo pitched pretty darn well. Um, he uh, did get himself into a bases loaded situation. I think in the third inning, only ended up giving up one run. Uh, it was bases loaded, no outs. He only gave up one run in that inning. Um, I think he made it through maybe five, four, four. Yeah. Um, but. He was looking good. He just his pitch count got up there because of that that uh, bases loaded situation. Um, but then I think Byron Buxton came up in like the sixth inning or something and hit a, mo- a massive home run to tie the game at three because um, the White Sox did have a three to one lead off of a leadoff Tim Anderson home run. There's a Danny Mendick home run, and yep. I can't remember the third run. Uh, right. It wasn't a homer, but it was someone else. No. And then uh, we get into extras, and I think uh, the White Sox actually actually took the lead um, in the 10th inning, um, went up, was it 5-4? to 4-3. Four? 4-3. Four, four to three. Four to three. Uh, and then it gets to the bottom of the inning, um, we do have the, uh, extra inning rule with the runner on second. So man on second, uh, I think there was a walk maybe to the first guy. Does that uh, sound right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So puts a man at first and second and then who comes up again? Byron Buxton. What does he do? He hits probably the longest home run I think I've ever seen. It went into like the third or fourth deck in like left center field. Yeah. It was a moonshot. I was so hyped when this happened. This was by far the most exciting moment for me of the entire season. And it was the longest home run uh, on a walk- walk-off home run in the StatCast era. It was 466 feet in Minnesota, cold Minnesota. Um, this ball was crushed. And for a little bit more context on that, the pitcher was Liam Hendricks. And he... Uh, after the game, it was revealed that he kind of hurt his back and he probably shouldn't have been pitching in that game. He had pitched like the inning before and then he sort of like felt something in his back between innings. But they sent him out there because he wanted to pitch and he's Liam Hendricks and you can't say no to him, I guess. And but but the real thing about this whole situation was. The fact that there was an open base and there was one out, so you could have faced. Buxton, or you could have just put him on base and then faced um, Luis Arias. I mean, he's a good hitter and everything, but Buxton is obviously on a completely different level. And yeah, and why do you Buck- why do you choose Buxton, to face him? Well, Buxton is a five tool guy, so you're kind of worried that he's gonna make contact. You're worried that he's going to make really hard contact. Uh, you're worried that if he puts it in the gap. I mean, yeah, there's two guys in front of him, and if both of those guys score, like it doesn't matter how far he gets. But Luis Arias is a good contact guy, and he's not slow, slow. 
I think, is really right. his thing. But he's not a power guy at all. No. Take your chances with him putting a ball in play, and if it's weak contact into the infield, potentially get a double play out of it. Yeah, it's like or at one least of those the run at home. where uh, they asked Buxton after the game, was he surprised that he got a fastball on 3-1 in that in that situation? And he thought about it for a second. He was like, kind of. Like, he was surprised himself that he got the fastball there. Um, yeah. So a little bit quizzical uh, decision-making coming from the White Sox there. Rick Hahn had a comment a few days later, or maybe the next day about it. They asked him what he thought about that decision to pitch to, pitch, pitch to Buxton. He said, I have opinions on that, and those are, and those are for those involved in decision-making. We have these conversations internally and talk things over as a group. Again, ultimately, hopefully, give Tony and the coaching staff the best information to make the right decision. So some very pointed comments. And uh, um, I feel like Rick Hahn never wanted to hire Tony LaRusso in the first place. He seemed pretty disappointed in the introductory uh, press conference. And like with decisions like this, Tony had a really rough week, I would have to say. Well, and so I, I think that's really funny based on what we said exactly one week ago when we were talking about Joe Madden. And I think I made the comment that uh, uh, when Tony LaRusa is making more decisions based on analytics than Joe Madden, you know that we're in an upside down world um, or something to that effect. And then he comes out and like every game this week, TLR has done something just stupid. Batting Larry Garcia third in the order when he's got an 071 batting average. He's a Hall of Fame baseball person, but if he would have continued his career before getting in, I'm starting to think maybe he wouldn't have. (laughs) This is why Hall of Famers are not supposed to come out of retirement. Yeah. 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 It would be like if Ozzie Smith came out of retirement to go play shortstop for the Cardinals because their shortstop is not really panning out right now. Yeah, I, physically, I'd pay to watch that. Like, That'd be physically, cool. he could stand in the spot. Granted, I think Ozzy probably could still do it. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I know he can still do a backflip. <laughs> Dang, I I should have come up with a better example than Ozzy Smith. Now I just want that to happen. That'd be so right? much fun, right? I mean, he'd be better than Paul DeYoung. Whoa! <laughs> and I'm there. And I'm one of the biggest Paul DeYoung believers there is. <laughs> you are, that's, yeah. That's how lost he is right now. That even I'm just sitting here like, what are we doing? Like, Edmundo's starting to get played. We're not talking about the Cardinals. We'll move on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about the White Sox, though. So, they endured a eight-game losing streak right there last week. They finally won today to end that. Apparently, Tony was dancing into the interview room. Uh, like, literally. And still uh, got it. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, this White Sox team, beyond the injuries, we know about the injuries. We can talk about that in a second, but they just are not playing well in general. Like they're not getting much production offensively. The defense has been absolutely the worst in the entire league. They're last in outs above average. Uh, Andrew Vaughn is pretty bad in the outfield. And he's been playing there a lot. It's uh, it's like one of those things. It has the potential to really go off the rails here while they're waiting for all their guys to get back. If they can't at least keep afloat before Eloy Jimenez comes back, before Lance Lynn comes back, 
I mean, this this season, which was supposed to be a huge season for the White Sox, could really just go downhill in a hurry. Now, is it just me or like I know they've got a lot of injury injuries they're dealing with right now, but is it just me or would you try and put out an outfield of Luis Robert, who's still healthy, right? I mean, he's kind of healthy. He had a groin injury, missed the whole weekend. So, all right, uh, Adam Hazley, he's healthy, right? I think they sent him down when Pollock came back. Oh, so Pollock's back. All right, so yeah. we got Pollock, we got Leury, we've got somebody else, right? That's physically capable of playing in the outfield. Uh, who's that? Adam I mean, they got they got Adam uh, Engel and Sheets, yeah. Yeah, so we they could put three guys out in the outfield that can play it defensively. Have Andrew Vaughn be the DH. Andrew Vaughn is hitting 279, 354, 535 uh, with, with three home runs. He, he is he killing it today, at the plate. Yeah. And so why are we bothering trying to put him out in Eloy's spot? Just let the kid hit. He's going to provide more value as just a pure hitter than he is as trying to put him out in left where he's actually losing you value. You have guys who can play... Um, defensively out in the outfield and Pollock is a is a a good um Pollock is a good defensive outfielder and um offensive so you'd be fine there just let Vaughn DH do his thing and figure out the rest like it's not that hard yeah I think it's it probably will get to that point pretty soon if if it keeps going badly for Vaughn. Yeah. Uh yeah, I don't I don't know if the White Sox uh I I don't know what I think about the White Sox at this point. Like the injuries are really rough though. Losing Lance Lynn, losing Aloy, like Well and isn't Kendall Grabeman hurt or one of the I, I thought one of the relievers just got hurt. Uh there was just Garrett Crochet right before the season. He's out for the season. Oh, for, I, I guess I was thinking because um, uh, Graveman made a couple of really awkward catches here this week uh, where he rolled. So maybe I was just thinking that he hurt himself, but I, I made that up. Um, but yeah, Hendricks is hurt. Um, and then now they're finally hopefully going to get back uh, Joe Kelly and Johan Mankata. And then, yeah. yeah. Which will be, it'll be good getting Yo back because um, Jake Berger is... He's doing okay. Uh, I don't think he's doing anything crazy. Um, But yeah, but I mean, yo is going to be kind of a stabilizing force there. Um, So that'll be, that'll be nice. I just, I, I don't think TLR is the guy. I think that even with these injuries, the management could be so much better than it is. And it's, it's really sad to see that. And for me to say that, because I loved TLR growing up. I have pictures with TLR over there. And this is not the same guy. It just, it pains me to watch this team. But, all right, what do you say we talk about the final uh, final walk-off? Sure. You want to break it down for us? Yeah, so this one was the, uh, the Mariners and the Royals, another extra inning game. Um, the Royals scored in the top of the 10th, and then... Um, Mariners batting in the bottom. Jesse Winker comes up with the runner on third. And he works a really amazing at bat where he's just fouling pitch after pitch off. And he finally hits a sack fly 
there in that spot to tie the game. Game keeps going on a little bit slowly. And then in the 12th inning, Winker comes up again and he works another 11 pitch at bat and then uh, hits a single to win the game. So that was a cool moment to watch because of how much struggles Winker's had this season. He's been really struggling to um, just like pick up hits, basically. He's still not striking out. He's walking at a truly elite clip, like 20% walk rate. Um, he just hasn't had really good luck so far when he's when he's actually made contact. And yeah, he's babbipping 188. Yeah, so I mean that's gonna change at some point. It's just like <laughs> it's been tough to watch him struggle so much because he's doing everything basically right. And um the thing that's so impressive about Winker is that he still refuses to expand his zone despite his struggles. He's still not swinging out of the zone at all. It's like 23% ozone rate, which is elite. So I, I'm, still, I'm still seeing good things for Jesse Winker, even though the surface numbers look awful so far to start this year. Dang, I didn't realize... Yeah, he's uh, his ozone um, rate is actually down three percent over last year so far. You almost wonder if he's being too uh, selective about it and needs to start ripping it a little bit more. Maybe his uh, his zone swing is is up, and his zone contact is down. So I wonder if that's. But he's still not striking out really. I guess he maybe just making a lot of weak weaker contact than before. Yeah. Yeah, I here let me scroll up and see if I can find that. Um yeah, his hard hit rate is actually down at 25%. So so that's definitely it. He's just not making a solid contact right now and and it's Jesse Winker. That dude has like insane power. It'll it'll come back around. Like his BABIP will come back up to normal at, or to at least sustainable levels like 188 yeah. is unsustainably low um if you told me sometime this winter that eugenio suarez was going to have a better batting average than jesse winker at any point in the season i would have said what happened to jesse winker yeah but all right, so what do you say we talk about our first milestone watch of the year so yeah. I'm actually going to insert one here uh, in front of the one that I think everyone's thinking. Um, and just briefly, today, uh, we actually saw Giancarlo Stanton reach uh, 350 career home runs. He is the seventh fastest player in Major League history to reach 350 home runs. So congratulations to Giancarlo Stanton. I got one more, soccer. actually, before we do the big one. All right, what do you this got? This one's really good, too. Yesterday, Andrew McCutcheon reached the 200-200 club, 200 homers, 200 steals. And I think the Dang. only active player who's in that club is Mike Trout. Dang. Well, so kudos to Kutch. All right, so now the big milestone that everyone has been watching for for a, a, literally a year now. Miguel Cabrera getting his 3,000th hit on, uh, what was it, Saturday morning, Friday morning, uh, last week against the Rockies. Saturday? 
Yeah. I think so, because they had a doubleheader because the first game was uh, postponed, right? Yeah, on Friday, yeah. Yeah. So his first hit bat of the day, uh, game one off of Antonio Sensatella, um, comes up and knocks a single. Um, they basically stopped the game for about 10 minutes, uh, did a whole bunch of celebrating there. Um, he is the seventh player in history to uh, reach 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. Um, so that is a very, very exclusive club. Um, adding on to that, Miggy has a 300, uh, aver- or 300 career average. He's uh, won two, tr- or no, he's won one triple crown, two MVPs. Um, he's won a World Series. What What is this four, guy? Four batting titles. Four batting titles. What has this guy not done? Like, name a thing he's not done. It, steal a base ever? Maybe? <laughs> I was going to say win the gold glove because that was always the knock. Oh, this guy's really not that good because uh, he never uh, can field. But obviously, that's not true at all. Guy's yeah. incredible. But Miguel Cabrera is hands down one of the best baseball players that most of us have ever seen. Like, we're watching Albert Pujols finish up his career that is equally as good. Like he's the only reason that uh, Albert is not in that um, magic uh, 3,500, 300 club with Miggy is because in the last couple of years, his average has dropped down to 297. He's actually bringing it back up this year. So maybe we'll see him get back into it, but I don't think he'll get enough plate appearances. Um, But those two guys are absolutely insane. Um, it, who's the next guy that's going to do it? I, we put up a Twitter poll and we probably should have put in an option for the field, but we didn't. Um, but who's the next guy that's going to do it? Juan Soto? See, I think my problem with Soto doing it is that he walks too much. He's going to have trouble making all those hits because he walks like a hundred times a year. All right. It's so what be about a guy a- that doesn't like to walk. So I'm thinking like a Wander Franco, really good contact skills doesn't like to walk too much and he's super young and he started super young. Well, so what about guys like Vlad or Boba Cause they're really young. They're really, really high contact skill guys. Vlad has yep. massive amounts of power. So that will help thing him with, with Vlad is just him staying healthy uh, for a really long career. That's really the only thing, but yeah, I could definitely see it. Yeah. But I guess, Point of the point of the story here is we're not going to see another 3000 hit guy for a very long time. Um, the next closest guy is uh, Nelson Cruz, who's at twenty six hundred and thirty three hits. Or he was a couple days ago when I checked. He might have got another couple since then. Um, wait, wait, Cano, right? Oh, yes. Sorry. Sorry. Robbie Cano, not Nelson Cruz. Um but yeah, 2631 or whatever it was hits. He's 38 years old. He's probably not going to get there because he's not going to play another three years. Um, I don't think he maybe, but he would have got it had he not had the PED suspensions. But he did, and it's kind of hurt his, uh, hurt his chances there. Uh, and then the next guy is Joey Votto, who's just barely.
really over to be high on for a while and it's time to eat our words brought to you by this chip miles michaelis i did not have a whole lot of faith in going into this year i kind of thought that he had uh kind of gone over the hill from his fantastic season in uh 2018 uh, he had had an ERA in the fours for the last two years that he's played. He did not play in the 2020 season. Um, and so I was really concerned about his chances this year. Come out in his first start, he uh, gives up um, two earned runs over. Why does this not give me his innings? I'm literally on the game log and it's not even telling me how many innings. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, he only pitched 3.2 innings or three and two thirds innings, gave up two runs, did not look good. And then his next three starts against Milwaukee, Miami, and then, uh, yesterday, or, uh, not yesterday, Friday against the Mets, he goes out and dominates all three games. He's got his season, uh, stats down to a 121 ERA, a 227 FIP. He's, uh, struck out 20% of batters, which is uh, about on par for him. Um, actually a little on the high side. Uh, he's not really walked all that many guys, uh, whip under one and he's just flat out dominating. So it's time for me to eat my words on everything I've said about miles Michaelis up until this point. So, yeah, same kind of thing for me with Chris Bassett. I don't know why I thought Chris Bassett was not that good, but I guess I just had his 6-11 ERA from his five starts from 2016 stuck in my head, maybe. Guy never really struck out very many batters. Uh, didn't have a very fast fastball. Um, maybe it was just him being on the A's. But I just always thought that Chris Bassett was really not that good. But when you look at the numbers in the last few years, this guy's been actually excellent. Um, and he's continued that into this season uh, in his first year with the Mets. He actually strikes out a lot more batters than he used to. Um, 225 ERA this season and four stars, 24 innings. Like This is exactly what the Mets were looking for, and their whole rotation has been amazing to start the year. So sorry, Chris Bassett. You're good. Yeah, so... Uh... I guess we're going to have to like stop trashing people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause they make us look like idiots. Yeah. I should probably, it's, it's easy for me to do that. Just like laugh at the pro athletes and say like, Oh, those guys are not good, but yeah. While all, I'm sitting over incredible. here, while I'm sitting over here playing the show on a rookie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just threw another perfect game. These guys suck. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's get to one of the two main topics we wanted to talk about today. The first is pace of play implementation in the minor leagues. Um, so we've been talking for uh, off and on for the last year about different pace of pay, pace of play rules, uh, ones that are potentially going to be implemented through the CBA, ones that are going to uh, be implemented here in the next couple of years, whatever. Uh, and pitch clock looks like it's on its way. Um, so pitch clock has been tried at all levels now at various, um, various lengths of time for the clock. And now we are in 
is it AAA with the the 14 second, 18 second? Yep, for the first time. Yeah, so basically all the way up to AAA, you get 14 seconds to throw a pitch when the bases are empty. You get 18 if there's runners on. And uh, penalties if you don't actually do that. And according to Jeff Passan, um, Major League Baseball has shaved 20 whole minutes off of game times with this pitch clock. This is exactly what they've been looking for for pace of play. It gets pitches closer together. It has shown in certain situations. I haven't seen in AAA, but in the California League last year, it actually helped increase offense. Um, and it reduces the overall length of the game to a more manageable point under three hours. So I guess, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, on first it? comment on that with the, the time of game. So it's obviously doing what they intended to do it, but I'm not exactly sure that that is the real problem, right? Even having a shorter game, is that is that really going to fix the issues with people being more interested in baseball? I'm not really sure. When you're at a baseball game, do you care if the game's two hours and 45 minutes versus three hours and 15 minutes? Probably not. Um, it's, it's like a pro it's not, I'm not sure it's a real problem, but they so, got the solution to it. So I agree with you. I think what it does help improve that people do want is time between pitches is not getting up to 40, 45 seconds like it can with some pitchers. And that amount of time between pitches in between balls being put in play because you're going into three, two counts where you're taking all five pitches. Like it's just boring for a lot of fans to watch. It was something and like so, four, four minutes between balls in play at major league games last year, which is sounds terrible if you think about it. And that's ridiculous. It shouldn't yeah. take that long. And that's what they're trying. And that's what they're trying to speed up. Uh, well, yeah, it, at one point they did say the overall length of the game, but this also speeds up that between um, between balls and play because you're getting more opportunities for it to be in play in a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, that also makes the game shorter. So it's one of those that it's like, I'm personally fine with the three-hour game. If I go to an NFL game, it's three hours. That one's fun the whole time. So the overall length of the game is not the problem, but this kind of alleviates some people's made up problem that the overall length of the game is too long in addition to. So what is actually the issue? So beyond that, I guess there's two questions that I have about the whole situation. One is there's this idea that, um, decreasing the amount of time between pitches could be dangerous to the pitchers because they're not having enough time to recover. And, and that's why they take so long now is so they can, they can ramp up and just like max out on all their pitches basically. And I could see why having less time between pitches would definitely drive up offense. Cause you're not going to be able to, to rear back and throw as hard as you can every pitch because it's just not possible, but is that is that like a bad thing or is that a good thing? I, I feel like that's a good thing, but the players are not going to enjoy that. 
Yeah, but it's one of those that like they're not going to enjoy it in the short term. But I think in the long term, it'll probably be beneficial in everyone's eyes. Because like one, if you're not sitting there and rearing back as as much, I, I don't I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if this is actually true. But is that going to help alleviate some of the issues with all the different guys that are having UCL tears and getting Tommy John that like these guys like Jordan Hicks that throw 105? Let's say now. And and he isn't now because he's starting, but like when you don't have as much time to recover between pitches, you don't throw it a hundred percent. You throw it maybe ninety percent. Yeah, and Is we that really help we, we won't know the we won't know the effects whether it's helping the pitchers if they don't throw as hard or that limited recovery time is actually going to be more stress on their arms. Who knows? We're not going to figure yeah. that out. Yeah, and until, until we actually see it. Yeah. Like, and then we're not gonna one know, other thing but... on, on this whole situation is if they're strictly enforcing it like they have been in AAA, where they're going to call a ball if you're – or they're, they're going to call a strike if the, if the batter is dawdling or whatever and not ready in the box after – I think it's like eight seconds or something, they got to be ready. If they're strictly enforcing it like that – there could be the potential for people to get really mad in some situations where like an automatic strike is called and that yeah. could be a big problem. Yeah. And we, uh, we definitely know how um, hot headed some of these guys can be. Oh yeah. Like certain situations. I mean, we and, saw that and, today and how deliberate some of these major league guys are in their approach at the plate. Like they're stepping out of the box, they're fixing something. They're, walking around and I I'm not sure it's going to be received very well even though basically all the fans like the idea of it I think yeah and it it went over well with the players in the California League as well I think it was Jason Stark that wrote an article about it last year um and I I need to go find that again but basically both the hitters and the pitchers kind of liked it in that league in particular it's one of these situations where the guys in the majors now, most of them, well, I guess most of them have played with pitch clock at some point, yeah. but like the old guard has not, they're not going to like it. They want to play the game their way, but the game is adapting. Like a lot of these younger guys have played with pitch clock before. Like they know what it's like. I think, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal for them as these older players kind of age out of the sport it won't be a, it won't be a problem. Yeah. I think you're ultimately right. It's just going to be a lot of complaining at first and then people will get used to it. And and at the end of the day, you got to live with the rules, whether you like them or not, you got to play by them. Yeah. The game will change with or without you. You got to get on board or get on out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, No, that actually did bring up something I wanted to talk to you about. So, this Mets Cardinals series, there was a bit of a, a a bit of an not an issue necessarily, but there was some people that were uh, not very happy. Um, this series, uh, there were a whole bunch of hit by pitches in on uh, Monday. Mark Canna got hit on Tuesday. Um, Dom Smith uh, got hit. Uh, Brendan Donovan of the Cardinals. Pete Alonso took a change up to the head that slipped out of the hand. Um, 
Starling Marte and Tommy Edmond both got hit. Uh, Nolan Arenado nearly got pegged in the chest in that game. And then today, Jeff McNeil got hit in the ankle. Um, Edmundo Sosa got hit. And then uh, Nolan Arenado uh, nearly got a fastball to the face, uh, which ended up clearing the uh, clearing the benches and uh, the bullpens. And it got really heated. Um, Nolan Arenado got ejected for yelling at and then um, the yelling at Yoan Lopez, the pitcher who nearly hit him uh, and shoving Tomas Nito out of the way. Stubby Clapp got ejected for uh, tackling Pete Alonzo, which I don't think was intended to be like in a fighting way. I think he was trying to get him out of the scrum, but I'm not sure. Pete didn't take kindly to it. He did say after the game that he could easily put someone in the hospital if he wanted to. Um, but then Yoan Lopez got to stay in the game. So, but... I, I keep seeing a whole bunch of people that are like saying that the Cardinals are um, are just throwing a hissy fit and um, because they almost got hit, but Pete Alonso did get hit and the Cardinals are the ones throwing a fit. And it's like, this has been a terrible series for pitcher control. And both teams have every right to be upset and frustrated. But there were five hit by pitches against the Mets, only three against the Cardinals, but two that were very, very, very nearly uh, Arenado getting hit in the head and Arenado getting hit in the chest. So why, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Because, like, obviously I'm kind of biased. We've seen situations like this happen plenty of times. Like, they basically all happen the same way. The, The main thing that I have the problem with, and I 100% understand where Arenado is coming from in that last at bat where he almost got hit in the head. Like that should not happen. If you want to settle it by like hitting the guy in the butt, like go ahead and do that. I'm not advocating for hit by pitches, but if that's the way you're going to do it, fine. But don't go for someone's head. That's, that's not okay at all. Yeah. And people will sit there and argue with us and say, well, Pete Alonso got hit in the head. It was a changeup. You don't intentionally throw a changeup at someone's head if you're trying to make a point. It, one, you don't throw at their head, period. But also, you don't intentionally hit someone with a changeup. You peg them in the butt with a fastball. Yeah. Like, it's one of the unwritten rules. That's just how it's done. So it's pretty easy to tell when it's unintentional. Like, a slider that hit McNeil in the ankle today that the Mets got upset about? Not intentional. <laughs> I definitely get getting upset because that's the what the fifth hit by pitch against your team in that series. Like, come on, guys, get your control under under control here. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of got the, the perfect the segue. Into, I got the perfect segue into our main topic here, and there were some quotes from Chris Bassett actually about the baseball itself. He says MLB has a very big problem with the baseballs. They're bad. Everyone knows it. Every pitcher in the league knows it. They're bad. They don't care. MLB doesn't give a damn about it. They don't care. We've told them our problems with them. They don't care. Is that this year? It was like yesterday. Oh. So he's basically talking about the texture of the baseball, and he's saying they're super inconsistent. One inning, you'll get like a good one or good ones, and then next inning you'll get, like, really bad ones. So beyond 
the ball being juiced or not. They've got some other manufacturing process sort of issues that even pitchers are not liking the ball, even though it's not flying as far. Yeah. So uh, that's actually a great, great point from just a control standpoint. Like, yeah, if the ball is sometimes slick and sometimes it's rough to where you can grip it and they're not allowed to use spider tack and any of that stuff anymore to get a grip on it, they're still checked. They got to figure out it shouldn't be that hard to implement uh, an Asian style ball where they've got the tack on the ball that all the Korean and Japanese pitchers seem to love. It shouldn't be too difficult to do that here as well. Yeah, like they already exist. They're possible to make. Why do (laughs) we not use them? Right. And whatever happened, because Major League Baseball made the two prototype balls last year that were exactly that. They took them to all the clubhouses and let people try them out for a, a day in uh, bullpens or bullpen sessions. And then they just disappeared and no I one ever the mentioned them again. about that, too. I think they're just going to complain about everything initially. That's just the baseball player way. Yeah, it is. But baseball's got to figure something out because this ball is is nuts. Like what? I I don't understand it. So. I guess with that, let's get right into our main topic today. So offense is gone, I think, is the main thing here. It's just gone. But we've got what? This is the lowest uh, home run rate that we've seen in uh, about six, six years um, so far uh, through the month of April. Um, We're actually down at like 3.7%. which, to be fair, is where we were at from like 2006 all the way up to like 2017. But it's so, a huge change from what we've seen in the recent years, specifically 2019 and 2021, where 2019 was everyone knows that that was the juice ball year. Home runs were flying out like crazy. So I, it's like people got used to that. And I'll be honest, like I'm part of that group. I got used to seeing a lot of home runs and it's it's kind of strange to see balls just dying like i've i've definitely noticed anecdotally that balls that i thought would get out have just like landed shy of the track so yeah same like pretty much every game you watch you see one that whenever you're watching the tv and you're just seeing the batter they hit it and you're like that is smoked it's out of there and then it drops like if it even reaches the track like they just they seem to just die and you go and look at the stat cast and these balls are hit like what 30 degrees and 105 mile an hour off the bat like it should be a homer based yeah. on everything that we've seen the last couple of years so what's going on with the ball yeah so we did a little digging ourselves with the stat cast data and we looked at basically the distance of fly balls and the fly balls I'm talking about are defined by StatCast as 25 to 50 degree launch angle um, ball. So we're not including line drives at all from 10 to 25 degrees for this exercise. We basically saw that the distance of these fly balls in this early part of the season was um, 311 feet. In 2021, that distance was 318 feet. So we've seen a, a drop and and that 2021 period was the same 
uh, exact period in the year. So it wasn't before, you know, the weather warms up and the ball flies a little bit further. It's the exact same period. You're losing seven feet of distance. So yeah, and I, I think the range that we were looking at, uh, in case anyone wants to go look themselves, is uh, April 7th to April 24th. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we've seen essentially seven feet lost between last year and this year with essentially the exact same launch angle, the exact same exit velocities. Yeah, and that's the big thing. It's like in 2021, if you hit a, a fly ball, you would expect uh, like a batting average of, you know, 279, slugging of 866, so really good numbers. And then in 2022, you're just getting a 243 batting average on on fly balls and then a 701 slugging. And for the for the league number there, slugging percentage is down all the way at 368 league-wide this year. So, dang. Now, the thing that kind of popped out to me and is just how similar um, – these these numbers are for 2022 to back whenever we were in essentially the dead ball, not the dead ball era, because that's like an entire different pre 1900 thing. Um, but like the the dead ball seasons of 2015, 2016, like the the distance per uh, fly ball is actually lower than those two. But the number of home runs, those are the only two years that had fewer home runs at this period in April. They're the only two that had a lower home run per fly ball ratio. Um, they're the only two that had um, lower lower exit velocities. And, like, the exit velocities weren't even by that much. Like, the BABIP was low. The batting average was low in those. Slugging was non-existent those two years. But... This ball is really, really similar, it seems, to that 2015-2016 ball. At least right now. Right, yeah. And so. I think that might be the key, is the right now part. Yeah, so we should definitely talk about the humidors. Yep. So, so the humidor situation was 11 teams had humidors prior to this season. Uh, for 2022... Uh, yeah. 10 10 teams so the remaining teams all got humidors for this year so a whole bunch of uh different climates that these balls were being stored previously and now they're all supposed to go in humidors at those ballparks at certain conditions and that's in efforts to keep things just controlled and yeah, it makes and a lot of sense and I believe what they're setting them all at is, um, oh, where's it at? Uh, 70 degrees and 50 per, or 57% humidity, uh, with the only exception being Coors Field, uh, which is actually at 65% humidity. And essentially, what's happening right now is the humidity in the air and the dew point is low enough right now that um, the humidors are pumping um, pumping humidity into the balls. It's making the ball heavier. It's making it less bouncy, um, essentially increasing the coefficient of restitution, uh, which just means that it's 
not going to leave with as high a velocity. We talked is about this it an last engineering year. pod. It is an engineering pod. We've we've mentioned that before. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't see them talking about coefficient of restitution in basketball podcasts. Right? This is like special. Um, I know. I love it. Um, but yeah, so in like Oakland, for instance, it's incredibly dry right now. Um, and so the the ball is essentially losing um, or it's more humid than the air. The ball is it's losing humidity to the air, but it's not as bouncy because it's it's got so much extra humidity. It's almost just like heavier than the air itself. So it's just dying. It's not being able to be carried out. And so potentially as the year goes on and we start seeing increased humidity in some of these places, we might see this ball carry a lot. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, it'll be one thing to watch for sure. Um, And I actually pulled some numbers because I was I was curious to see, like, how much of a difference this humidor was making, um, even just in like one locale. So I actually pulled numbers for uh, barrels um, in Yankee Stadium and um, City Field uh, in the Statcast era, and. Uh, City Field actually got a humidor back in 20, 2020, I believe. So um, if you kind of ignore that year, uh, but this is over the the full course of the year. So, so far in 2022, we're actually seeing uh, barrel dist- or average barrel distances of 362 feet in Yankee Stadium. Granted, that's only in April. The rest of the numbers are for the full course of the year. Um, but the next lowest, uh, barrel average barrel distance is 378 feet. So we've essentially got 16 feet to make up by the end of the year to be the same as like normal. That humidor is affecting the ball so much that we can see such a drastic difference now. And we'll make it up as we get into more humid, humid times, but just to to kind of show you the difference, if you look at City Field, they're actually only seeing about an eight foot difference between 2022 and 2021. So it's it's about half as bad. Um, and we know that some of that distance is because the ball has changed because um, they intentionally deadened the ball, um, which now we have all 2021 and after created balls so we'll see a couple feet knocked off from there and then the rest is probably because of the humidor but we're starting in a much better spot in city field than we are in yankee stadium for trying to match the previous average so there's a lot of different factors in the in the whole situation one other thing that uh, i'll just bring up really briefly here is just the the fact that spring training was really short and uh, maybe the hitters are just behind where they normally would be at this point in the season, and maybe they'll they get it going here shortly, even without the different weather or whatever the ball is doing. Like, I, I don't know. It's just another factor in this whole situation. Yeah, and and the one other thing that was kind of a factor is is the drag coefficient on the ball. Going back to engineering pod, um, so. Major League Baseball did intentionally deaden the ball, but how they did that was they changed essentially the inner core of the ball to make it so it was less bouncy. 
that coefficient of restitution I mentioned would be lower and it would come off the bat theoretically at a slower speed. Um, we're actually not seeing much of a difference in exit velocities, but we're seeing a huge difference in drag in the ball. So as it goes through the air, it's just getting basically cut down by the wind um, more than it has in the past. This is actually the highest drag that we've seen on an, on a ball uh, since at least before 2018. Um, and so that's that's also helping deaden the ball. So there's there's a whole bunch of different stuff. And I'm curious to see how much of it changes throughout the year versus how much of it's going to stay the same. Like we're, we are only like what three weeks in, yeah. So maybe small sample sizes. Who knows? Maybe it was a bad batch of balls. Yeah. <laughs> That's another problem for MLB. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Let's see. We got anything else on the ball situation we want to talk about? I uh, just uh, feel bad for the hitters right now because I feel like. It would be frustrating if you hit a ball a certain way that you've done in the past and you think you're going to get something out of it, but then it just dies on you. Yeah. And like, um, I know we had, uh, um, Derek had tweeted back at us, uh, the other day and, uh, was actually asking why the heck are we having so many of these balls in that, that Cardinal game just die at the track. Cause I think back to back to back, uh, Goldie, um, Tyler O'Neill, and uh, maybe it was just back to back. Maybe, uh, Arenado didn't hit one to the wall at that point, but these balls looked like they were just monster home runs off the bat. And then they die about three feet in front of the wall. And it, it's frustrating for fans. It's frustrating for the players. It's just something that we're not used to anymore. I think is the main thing. And the reason why it's a big deal is because the thing we haven't really talked about here is that even though home run rate is sort of similar to what it was in like 2014, 2015-ish, the thing that's changed is the strikeout rate around the league where we've seen so many more strikeouts. So then when you when you put a bunch of strikeouts with way less home runs, your offense goes down and then you're scoring like something like under four runs per team game, which is incredibly low and that's i would say a really bad thing for the sport if if offense is that depressed yeah so i i'm curious to see if we see more offense as it gets farther into the summer or if we have to start or if players are going to have to start making adjustments to um maybe decrease launch angle until mlb changes the ball again for the second half of the season Yep, pretty much. Yeah. And they won't tell anybody until the athletic finds out during the postseason. Those balls open. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually really curious to see a study on this year's ball. Uh, because with the coefficient of drag being so much higher, uh, it almost makes me think the laces are raised again. Like I can't think of any other way that that would be the case unless like the, all the balls are just scuffed instead of being smooth or something like, I don't know, but I want to see someone do a study on it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really all we've got today. 
So if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to uh, to subscribe on all your favorite podcasting apps or on YouTube. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Getaway Day Pod. Um, let us know if you have any questions. Uh, we uh, did our first listener question last week. Um, that question came from Stacy. It was about um, the contract situation for players that are going up and down from the major or the minors. Uh, great question. Um, and so check that one out if you haven't. Uh, but let us know your questions. If you're new to baseball and you just don't understand something, let us know. We're more than happy to help people get into the sport. That's that's what we love to do. We want more people to love this sport. Or maybe you've watched the sport for a while and there's something a little bit more complicated you just don't understand. Try us. Let's see if we can figure it out. Um, let's see, is there anything else? No, I... Uh, I think that's about it. We will uh, have something different going on next week. I don't know exactly what. I will be out of town next week. And then uh, me and Gautham and our uh, sometimes guest host, Matthew, are going on a baseball trip the following week. So we will be changing up the schedule here for the next couple. Uh, So just check out our Facebook and Twitter to get those updates. Uh, Thank you and have a great rest of your day.